Hello, how's it going? This is a quick little bonus episode that we recorded as part of our Streets Where They Lived series funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund here in Northern Ireland. If you've been listening along, you know that we are on a bit of a journey to discover the stories of really interesting people from history and the buildings that they once called home. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded as part of our first episode, which was all about the legendary footballer Danny Blanchflower, who has a blue plaque on a red brick terrace house in East Belfast. And we kind of wanted to look at the bigger picture and the bigger story of red bricks and Belfast and what it means to the city and where that sort of came from and how it's an important part of our story. So we hopped on the phone really quick with the wonderful Rita Harkin. Rita is an absolute genius when it comes to all things to do with architectural heritage. She also specifically headed up a project called Red Brick Belfast, where she did a deep dive into a lot of the stuff we had the chance to talk to her today about. And after listening to this today, if you're interested in what you heard, I can highly recommend checking out the short film that they made as part of that project, alongside the other useful links uh, that Rita mentions at the end of the episode. So you can go out and do your own digging, do your own investigating to learn more about the places, the spaces, and buildings around you where you call home. All right, awesome. That's enough for me. Time to jump straight into this really insightful and super informative conversation with Rita, starting off with her first memory and where her passion for heritage has come from. I remember getting my own nappies from uh, the dining room uh, cupboard, which uh, this is uh, stuff I tell my children that I was obviously put to work at a very early age and, <laughs> and trying to get them involved with the chores. That's, that's a memory I clearly recall. Yes, that I was, so that must have been pretty young. Either that or I was in you know, Captain Numbers for too long. <laughs> I mean, either way, deeply responsible from a young age. You know, we can draw out the positives in that. That's probably why I broke out later on. Yeah, because I was resistant. <laughs> so I love it. Too much responsibility in early age. Class. So how about your, your passion for um, architecture, more specifically architectural heritage? Like, um, you know, to be um, blunt and kind of crass about it, not a lot of kind of primary school kids are, you know, skipping to school and thinking, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Like, how did that kind of develop in your own life? You no, know, I can definitely attribute that to my parents, for sure. And my father, um, he was a pharmacist, but he always talked himself as being a frustrated archaeologist. So <laughs> when we went to on holidays, it was always to historic sites and Monster Boys, this place we used to stay in. Um, loads around Drogheda and on holidays you always went to places like Carnac or Standing Stones you know, there, there was always wow. something in the holiday that was weaved in that was uh, to do with the built heritage and I mean, you know, at school even me and one of my pals who turned to became an architect I remember us studying sketching St Lyric's Church Mahara and you know and, and the lovely McCormick Church but uh, I was also talking to somebody about this recently we lived in the main street and opposite us was the old cinema, and there was also McCormick's church, which you could see from my bedroom. And I remember them demolishing um, oh, McCormick, wow. demolishing the cinema rather, and where everybody used to sit in the steps. So you know, big big steps with the cinema. Yeah, and that was just taken down uh, when I was very young. Must have been, you know, but under ten anyway. And and also when they massacred the church and just took away so much that was special about it, the stained glass and the lovely bell tower and the moat and all these amazing. Um, um, artifacts and artwork by Oshin Kelly, all was removed wow. um, by the church, and it was just—I just remember being aghast. And it was—it was so painful. We, me and my pal, tried to get listed back then, so it was very, yeah, very four well, how, years. How old were you? How old would you have been there? Your first uh, list quest. <laughs> <laughs> 
that was uh, probably when we were about yeah, 10 or 12. Incredible. Maybe a, bit, a, little bit, a little bit older, maybe. But it was, yeah, it was, that was sort of painful to see all that being eroded right, right in front of our house. Absolutely. And, yeah, the difference these places made to the town. I was, I was aware of those at that point. Yeah. I guess, like, yeah. one of my favourite things about um, doing the podcast is having the chance to uh, talk to people who have, like, interesting careers that I didn't know about. So... What's life sort of like as a freelance heritage advisor? Like, how, how does one get into that? And, and how do you spend your days, effectively? Well, it started off with me working for an architect. This is way back. Um, I started with an architect called Rachel Bevan, uh, English architect, and her husband, Professor Willie, um, who, in fact, I got an email from him today. But he's, uh, they're both really involved in green architecture, you know, sustainable architecture, which also involved uh, the reuse of existing buildings as part of that. So they really got me um, excited about it. And, and so I, only then that I suppose I understood this could be a work opportunity, that you know, there could be a role in this, did a lot of research with them. And then uh, I volunteered, um, which I think yeah, was a great route into the Ulster Architectural Heritage. Mm. So I was there for about 12, 13 years. And that was really campaigning, trying to defend, make the case for you know, a lot of advocacy work which became ultimately fairly frustrating because it felt fairly negative at the end. It was just trying to battle against as yeah. opposed to shine a light on potential. They tried to do that, but it always sort of felt that we were the naysayers. Um, and then, then this rule is uh, is also about architectural heritage, architectural heritage fund, but it's more about, I suppose, trying to find solutions and working with groups, charities, social enterprises to unlock the potential of some of the most difficult um, buildings at risk. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, and as a freelancer, it's it's, it's wonderful. I'm home-based, but it means <laughs> I, get to, I still get to meet lots of people Absolutely. Uh, in normal times uh, and see, you know, see buildings right across the province and try, um, as a social investor, it's really important to me, as important, to be honest, as the buildings are the people and the difference it makes to the people who are left behind um, and trying to see these buildings as a way to connect with the needs of, of communities in need uh, that's really important and that's a critical part of this role which i really relish i must say that's great so kind of like starting and zooming out and, and staying in kind of the broad kind of uh perspective for now can you talk to me a little bit about red bricks and belfast and i'll be honest like it wasn't really until i was like probably like getting into my early 20s that I even really knew, oh, Belfast is somewhat famous for red brick. And it was tourists who were telling me this or it was, mm. you know, having conversations with people like Willie Jack who've been, you know, in the Cathedral Quarter for a long, long, long time. And they've been, uh, you know, really, really connected to the city. But I never realized this was such a big part of my own kind of heritage. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the it's the urban vernacular, and this was in the same way that her vernacular or local dialect is. It's the dialect of the architecture, given that it's what the city is built on. It's the clay um, of the Lagan Valley, and it's you know, it's it's like if we see the field stones forming the rural vernacular cottages. It's the same for the city. Wow. Um, I suppose it's it's really it's calling card. You know, it's it's a very distinctive bit that uh, makes Belfast Belfast in, a, in physical terms, um, and. Yeah, these these terraces that that have um, crisscrossed the city are starting to erode more than we know. I think it's only when you see the aerial kind of shots mm. above us you see you know the, the level of attrition, the level of of a wipeout of the of these fantastic urban villages. But you know we've got had brickyards right across the city and making some beautiful distinctive brick specials as well um, from Annadale and other um, other factories or other brickyards. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's very much the distinctive fabric of That's this great. place. It's that here's me kind of. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I mean, so so like in essence, you're saying is like on a fundamental basis, like the red brick is because this is what the raw material was available in this area. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The wow. first material to hand that you know is fired and stable and. Um, and then became very decorative as well. And so you had, and the need for the terraces coming from the workers from from the rural areas coming in to work in the, the shipyards and the, the linen factories. So the need for that, when Belfast developed exponentially in the late 19th century, then these terraces sprang up to accommodate these workers. So we've got um, some beautiful examples, and we, some ones in particularly East Belfast and McMaster Street, where you've got a listed a, a conservation area and two, uh, two streets, which are all listed buildings because there was then a realisation that these are actually buildings that are under threat. And they were seen to be, you know, very ordinary uh, to a penny, but now we realise it's that sense of the extraordinary in the ordinary, that these are buildings that are, I say, very much um, of this place. And and those details are, are becoming rarer and rarer as we lose them and sometimes replace them with red brick terraces, but not of the same mm. character and the same patina and the same level of, uh, of detail as the other ones. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, I mean, talk to me about kind of you've already um, you've already touched upon it, but the kind of I suppose the purpose or the why behind these red brick terrace houses. You know, we sometimes affectionately refer to them as two up, two down. So, not all of them are two up, two down. That's kind of you know a label that's been put on them. But um, you know, economic necessity. Who was building these? You know, why were they building them? And if you have any insight into particularly that kind of like East Belfast Orange Field area, what were those houses uh, that Danny Blanchflower would have lived in? Why? What was their sort of purpose of being built? Well, those ones I mentioned in McMaster Street and East Belfast were you know, for artisans, for carpenters, for you know, people working in the trades, in the shipyards. And some of those were so slightly grander than other ones. Some of them were parlour houses that had parlours downstairs. Um, some, of them, some didn't have those and they were the kitchen houses to so and with the out- outdoor bathrooms and then sculleries. Uh, and so yeah, you're accommodating those workers with a huge surge, particularly to the shipyards and all those um, crafts, which were elevated in those days. And yeah. this was need to be looked at again as a proper workman um, and skilled craftsman. Uh, that was who they were uh, designed to accommodate. Fascinating. And so like uh, there was like, well, was there some sort of like, bus network or tram network that would connect them up to the shipyards or did people yeah, those work? Were all tra- yeah there are still tram lines in the streets there actually in those cobbled streets as well there's still traces of those remaining so yeah that was very well interconnected as we know the city was um if we'd have only held on to that wonderful network of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, uh, you know, it could have been the yeah the, yeah the future that's it the the but, original glider <laughs> yeah well exactly the proper thing without the yeah, not sound with wheels stuck on yes that's <laughs> was, but yeah so i don't know if you were covering parts of you saw that must send you a link to like to the, the red brick belfast piece and that i was working on with community arts partnership yeah so i'm really fascinated by that i watched that, I, yeah. I watched that and i um i've read up all about it and the reason why it almost feels like now it's got quite a lot of sentimental value to me because we just have moved uh out to Dremore, but we lived in the village for three years after we got oh, married really? and we lived oh. on thelia street which is just right bang there in, oh, the, on, in the middle of it all and you know, even when we were there, we saw that little spar oh. be transformed into the massive Eurospar. Um, you know, we saw kind of like were the, you I there think, during the demolition then of all the yeah, terraces? Yeah. Um, God and uh, mm-hmm. I think we saw, not necessarily saw, but we you know all of a sudden the blue plaque appeared for uh, Ruby Murray. And so it's uh-huh. such a rich, like, um, 
such a rich area and we interviewed baroness may blood and she'd grown up on roden street which is connected to that whole area and so mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. It, it really even just watching the videos especially because you know we've been in lockdown and haven't been able to uh you know be in that part of belfast for a while i'm like oh man like it just hits you you're like boom all the oh. history all the stories so yeah I, i'd love to hear about um about that about the village and about the the red brick belfast kind of project yeah, I mean, it, it meant a lot to me, actually. It was kind of my ticket to this job. I showed that video as part of my job interview to, oh, to, impress, yeah. to, impress, to impress upon the, the Architecture Heritage Fund that this was something was, you know, in, in my blood about, you know, the uh, the importance of these buildings and what it means to um, the future regeneration of these communities and the people, um, again, who are left behind. But the, this was, uh, the genesis of this really was a public inquiry. It must have been 20 13, 2014, whenever, again, I was in that defending role at the Ulster Architectural Heritage to try and protect um, the 400-odd buildings that were proposed for demolition. And, you know, most of them had been just surveyed externally and most of them were in fair condition, but it was mm. just uh, urban renewal policy that basically led to the proposal to basically wipe them out en masse without looking at their individual um, condition and we were creating it back in the public inquiry to, it's like the dentist of the 1970s, you just rip all your teeth out. You know, <laughs> instead of out with taking, the jaw. <laughs> I know, but it was a perfect analogy. It was one of the other architects, um, Arthur Atchison, he caught with that now. That was a brilliant, you know, analogy that, you know, instead of looking at the ones that are sound and leaving them behind mm. and trying to, you know, work with what you've got, um, and, and also in terms of energy efficiency, instead of just wasting all this and, and piling into landfill, etc., just none of it made any sense. But we, we lost... Um, the case, the public inquiry, it was all kind of um, a done deal, as, as it turned out, really, um, in the end. But but what became clear to me was that there was no point in me wheeling in to say this: these buildings really matter and should be protected and reused. But you really needed the local community to get yeah, um, in behind right. it. And some of them did, you know, there were voices there, but they all kind of got lost in this big push for a brand, brand new shiny future, um, which sadly, ultimately, you know, led to the unravelling of a lot of the community and people were cast to the four winds and were never yeah. going to return, of course. Um, so so I sort of sat on this for a while and uh, then I approached Community Arts Partnership, Connor Shields, who was kind of with me on this, you know, connecting arts and heritage and trying to trying to bring these things together in a positive way that would you know, try and look at whether the community could see their cultural heritage as something more than the flag and you know trying to get under the skin sure. of this place um and there there was then an appetite this is a local group through greater village generation trust did work decide to work with us um, and we were working with young men and and actually the women of the area then they were saying why can't we get involved as well so they, <laughs> it was great but it was a brilliant intergenerational thing that just sort of evolved but it, but it looked at you know the maps of the area got them to find out about the brick wow. um, brick works and looking at the you know, the churches and the terraces and the and the factories and how these were all distinctive buildings, which they hadn't ever really interrogated before. Um, got them to you know, get involved in photography and videography. And, you know, they were just really getting stuck in and we had a brilliant ceramic artist working with us. They were just, you know, getting really hands-on, making bricks and looking at how they might get involved. But it just seems to me that there's something really obvious that still hasn't had a sort of purchase about how you get um, these younger people who or disenfranchised to get involved in restoration and see that as a a way forward in terms of you know job creation and the green green polar economy stuff, which I think is really um, pertinent, obviously today. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like uh, in reading up about that whole project, there was this really, 
um, kind of interesting moment where as the buildings were being demolished, some of these young men were <laughs> picking up some of the bricks that were kind of like left behind. Is that right? That's well, they're brick bandits, they were called. They were selling. So they had this, you had to admire, they had this kind of uh, energy and resourcefulness where they realized that was the thing. People weren't valuing the buildings as a whole. Yeah. But they, but they, when their things were being dismantled and then they realized that the salvage guys were paying money for them, then they, then they could see value and started to get up. And they were getting up. I remember filming there. In fact, I was there when I uh, got word that my father had died. And I was in one of the houses since been demolished with Louisa Blackburn, this brilliant woman who was also trying to protect the buildings. And uh, it, uh, we were there at seven in the morning because it, they were starting to demolish. We were trying to get some good footage. And the, the boys were there before that. You know, they were there. <laughs> <laughs> and I just told these guys to get out of their beds at half six and go and wow. get some bricks to flog. But, you know, it was about how you redirect that energy and totally. appetite with, with some structure and a vision that says, well, hold on, at least you could start to work in these buildings and stitch them back and earn money that way and look at your work and say, look, I repaired that sash window. Yeah. I, you know, I did that lime uh, repair work there and this is part of my my community and this is um, yeah part of my handiwork and you, you can really try to harness that pride totally um, and and energy i say but i mean like yeah. it, not to like not to shoehorn like metaphors aggressively but <laughs> <laughs> there there is like something quite poetic about uh you know younger generations picking up the pieces of a old historic part of that community you know like how much like why do you think it's so important for us as a younger generation to hold on to old buildings because like you said, the allure of the shiny, the allure of, well, let's flatten this area and put, you know, a 10 story apartment block, you know, duplex, complex, yeah. multiplex, blah, blah, blah. You know, th the, yeah. that allure's there. So why do you think these, these buildings are so important and why do you think they're worth fighting for? Well, it's increasingly important, isn't it? I mean, it's for psychologically, you know, going to be all over the place for quite some time. And the idea of being anchored by things that are, as you say, we said the earlier part is rooted in the earth, rooted in this place. Mm. Um, directly and giving that that anchor and sense of self, um, and we talk about authenticity. I mean, that's absolutely the core of of these existing buildings that have that character. And and it's the layers and layers of people who've lived in them, who've worked in them, who've invested their energy and crafts and uh, attention to detail. None of which really um, happens anymore unless you've got you know repair of existing buildings. It doesn't happen in a new build. You don't have that the texture. You don't have that yeah. level of interest. Um, and you don't have often that, that there's a human scale. I mean, that's something that the terraces particularly bring into play is this wonderful human scale and the fabric uh, that they weave, you know, just these tight-knit communities. And, and they always talked about the older woman in that uh, project, Rebrick Belfast project, you know, the doors open and people coming in and out yeah. of each other's houses. And, um, you know, and when they create new communities, they often create these, you know, cul-de-sacs and it's much less dense. But here you have really genuinely close-knit communities that you, know, you begin to demolish, you begin to unravel that um, that fabric and that sense uh, of, of self that goes with it. And it's like, you know, it's like anything that's sustainable, it's things that are layered up over time that are organic and that really stick. Mm. You, know, you take it away suddenly and it's just a real shock. It's a shock to the system and it's um, you lose confidence, I think, when you demolish buildings. Absolutely. At this, this scale, just you lose, yeah, the, the Belfast, you know, it definitely stops, stops knowing who it is yeah. As much, yeah absolutely and how connected do you think um you know stories of the past are to these kind of physical artifacts of the past if that makes sense oh i mean they're all completely interconnected aren't they people in place 
Um, and but if you don't have, I remember trying to defend Shimatini's house on uh, Ashley Avenue, where he'd written "Door into the Dark." You know, and wow. you got you know, and it wasn't could be, couldn't get it listed, and you know, it was demolished, and it's still a gap site. I mean, just complete waste. But you know, you lose when you lose the tangible link. Um, then you you start being reminded, um, but also with those tangible links, you can you can then imagine yourself transport yourself back into that time and place. Um, but you start to erode that. It's like you know, build, a landscape without buildings. It's like a man's like memory. Wow. But, you know, but, the pe- but the people that <laughs> but the people I associate with it, it gave it that extra layer of interest and and human connection. Um, but yeah, the two go absolutely go hand in hand. It's don't, these are not just yeah, just bricks and mortar. These very much are manifestations of uh, of the story of a place and its evolution over time. Wow. Um, just to kind of like end, one of the things that I'm really um, passionate about doing this series is trying to give people and try to even give myself kind of like practical action of something that I can do, like practical steps that we can take to become more connected to the places that we call home and so just even whenever you were talking about the the young man pouring through the old maps and i saw it in the video too something mm. kind of quickened inside of me i was like bro mm. i want to look at old maps of like where i live like i want to see what like you know the, the places around me like used to be like uh they were amazing i have to say that was a really important part of it and you know we'd, we'd added all these activities and layers of stuff in and i thought oh, God, we could bring them into public record office and everybody's just gonna be wandering around you know whistling you know going on board and you know and it was but it was amazing. They got so engrossed. When it becomes when it becomes your story and your mm. granny and your people and, and people like somebody started doing, doing a bit of doodling and graffiti. But soon they were just completely sucked in, and it was just. Inc- I mean, there's something about maps and that scale of map, I suppose, as well. Yeah. And they started to see the factories. You know, the the Rydalmere factory we were looking at for the 1920s. They could see it there on the map, and they could see you know the earlier maps, the brickworks, and all, all these things that we were talking about just sort of became it's incredible. Lively, even though it was through the maps, and yeah, and somebody got that, those resources in there are just yeah. extraordinary. So, I mean, for the for the people listening, whether they, you know, they're uh, students in their in their university halls who want to take a trip down uh, with their mates, or maybe a family's listening, or maybe a couple, or maybe just someone who wants to find out more. How do we actually go about, you know, finding out some of this stuff? Where can you send us? Where where can we go to to find out and and kind of investigate ourselves? Well, the public record office is a good source. I mean, we went down there physically, so I need to I suppose, figure out what's on there. Um, Maps-wise, maybe they're loading lots of stuff up as well. They, there's a list of buildings database in terms of buildings of, uh, of Belfast and right across Northern Ireland, which is managed by the Department for Communities and the Historic Environment Division. Uh, Ulster Architectural Heritage has got loads of good resources um, as well. Uh, so those are those three good places to start. Awesome. And I will um, put links to them. And uh, if anyone's listened to this, you can uh, you can go and check it out and uh, maybe find some interesting things about uh, the place that you call home. Rita, honestly, you've given us more than enough. That was an absolute... I felt like I've literally just tapped into the heritage <laughs> mainframe. It's like a mainlining like, wisdom and knowledge right now. It's awesome. Uh, I think it's pretty erratic, but, but really nice take part. Thanks for asking me to participate. Really no. enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right, Matthew. Bye. Cool. Hello, my name is Simon Worthington and I am based in Port Stewart. I am the editor of Turf and Grain magazine, an independent magazine which is committed to sharing the stories, experiences and ideas of the people of Ireland. I listen to Best of Belfast because it does the same thing for Northern Ireland and it shows us all that Northern Ireland has a better story to tell than what is often represented in the mainstream media. My favourite episode is 
the episode with Ryan Crown. Um, Ryan is someone I know and someone whose amazing career I followed quite closely over the years. I support the podcast financially just because it's really important for independent media to receive backing because it's a really important space within our society and this podcast is just doing a really amazing thing for Belfast, if I'm honest. If you've been on the fence about joining the Producers Club and would miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, I'd highly recommend considering joining it today. You can do that over at bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to chatting to you in the WhatsApp group soon. Thanks.